Britain feels broken, but how do we fix it? Westminster just doesn't seem to have the answers, but we have found some people who do. Join me, journalist Becca Hudson, and me, the former MP Ed Vasey, for How I'd Fix. From the price of a pint to the housing crisis, this is the show where we take an alternative look at the problems plaguing the nation. And hear practical solutions from those in the know. Catch new episodes of How I'd Fix wherever you get your podcasts. Rebuilding Britain starts here. Good morning. You're watching the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk. We're on TV, we're on radio, we're online and we're on your smart speaker. Coming up, the government spent 15 million quid of your money on an abandoned prison site to house migrants that developers paid just 6 million for a little while ago. Don't bank on it, though. The cap on bankers' bonuses will be scrapped next week. Some critics are calling it an obscene decision. I'm not one of them. And Harry and Meghan became the latest victims of a family guy sketch over earning millions from Netflix for no one knows what. Harry! Harry! Welcome back. You're watching Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Now, while a quarter of migrant hotels are finally going to be returned to actually being used for hoteling uh, in the spring, the Home Office has found yet another way to waste our money. They're spending 15 million quid on an abandoned prison whose owners bought it for just 6 million quid last year. I mean, that comes on top of some other news today uh, that we found the migrant hotel king, who happens to be called Graham King, and he's a guy uh, who's made something like 60 million quid out of the Home Office uh, because he's very smartly got into the housing illegal migrants business. Let's talk now to the director of the Centre for Migration and Economic Prosperity, uh, the one and only uh, former UKIP MEP, Mr Stephen Wolf. Stephen, how are you? I'm very well, Mike. How are you? Yeah, we're very, very good indeed here in the uh, the remade uh, Independent Republic of Mike Graham. It's bigger, it's better. Uh, and it's more expensive, a bit like the Home Office. I mean, you and I are in the wrong business. I mean, your migration sort of study centre should be switched over and turned into some kind of hostel for migrants, and you'd be driving around in a Rolls Royce by Christmas. A particular company, Clear Homes, along with Mir Homes and Serco, had signed a £4 billion deal with the Home Office at that time. And everyone was saying this was an extraordinary number, as we now know. Numbers have shot up. We've seen huge numbers crossing the channel. And as a consequence of that, these companies then started to make money on a daily rate in addition to those that they'd already contracted with. So I've said for a long time there is an immigration industry that consists of those housing the illegal migrants and the asylum seekers. There's those charities that are making a fortune from direct government funding from central office as well as those from local councils. There's law firms and lawyers who are making it on the applications that are undertaking it. And of course, the security firms and a whole variety of people. This is just an industry that many, many people never want to see the end of. Well, exactly right, because this is what I've often been saying as well, because everyone's making money, you know. Uh, the, 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 <laughs> the migrant smugglers are making money, the migrants themselves are making money, the hoteliers are making money, the people putting people in hotels are making money, the people driving them to the hotels are making money. The only people getting stooped in this whole equation uh, are the good old taxpayers of the United Kingdom. Um, we've got, we've seen pictures already of this guy, uh, Mr King, rather well-named Graham King, former caravan park and disco tycoon. I mean, it beggars belief that he's baking so much money, but he's probably not the only one. And also, um, he's got a deal that lasts for another six years with the Home Office. So no matter who gets in next, no matter what policies they may want to have, they're still going to be paying out massive amounts of money to this guy. 
Oh, absolutely. And we made discoveries of recently of a hotelier buying hotels in Wales and other parts of the country that actually has an offshore investment fund that is actually owns the, the UK companies that own these hotels that are making applications to the local councils so that they can be used to house asylum applicants and illegal migrants. So there is plenty of money out there. And of course, whenever you get a company like that, there's lending as well. Banks will be lending to these organizations so that they can expand their hotel and property empire. They no doubt buy them on business mortgages, as it's a different to a residential mortgage or a short-term loan. So again, the bankers are making money out of this. And it's extraordinary after all this time that we don't have a full report from the government. There's no checks from the Home Affairs Select Committee that identifies all the money that's cost. And every time you ask them, they say it's too expensive for us. We can't provide you with the actual costs through freedom of information unless you pay us to do the research for you. Right. It's not too expensive, though, to spend eight million quid a day to, to put them in hotels. They just can't find a few thousand to actually find out where they all are. But we did a study this morning, uh, a survey right here on Talk TV uh, with Talk Today, asking people for their view on this idea that migrant hotels are going to be closed. Nobody's quite sure how this is going to work so that the migrants can be moved into cheaper, apparently, hotels. Has your community suffered from having one in your area? Yes, 69%. Because, you know, the Tories have told us this morning through Jonathan Gullis that, oh, well, most of these hotels are in Tory areas. I don't know where most of these hotels are, but they seem to be pretty much everywhere. You know, every single... I got a, a, a note just last night that one of the big hotels in the middle of Birmingham, the Birmingham Hilton, uh, has now been made uh, unavailable, shall we say, for future bookings, which would suggest, like many places, uh, it's just going to be block booked by the Home Office. Well, initially, our, our research showed that where the hotels began was outside on coastal areas, such as those in Lincolnshire, uh, and and then they started being taken in into big big cities, mm. places like and around them, like Stockport, for example. And the reason for that is those areas were northern, they were cheaper, and they were much closer to lower middle class and working class areas and didn't impact those people. But now that we've had so many and so many hotels are full, they really started having to go into more expensive areas. I've even heard them talking about in Surrey and and in, in, in places like Winchester being analysed and the costs were too much. And that's why the government started to panic, panic on two fronts. Firstly, the cost would be extraordinary when you have to start taking out hotels in the very wealthy areas. And suddenly these people would actually see the impacts in their local communities, which would impact on the votes on what could be soft, soft conservative mm. seats. So as a consequence of that, they then tried to bring in Bibi and the military bases, the former military bases, to try and reduce them. But more importantly, Mike, more importantly than anything else, is I've seen the upsurge in those being granted asylum under the generalist discretionary route that the government has. And I think when our figures come out, the next figures come out just at the end of December, we'll see that Rishi Sunak has been trying to solve this problem, not by deporting those who are illegal, but actually granting asylum to almost everybody. Exactly right. And another story this morning in The Times, an incredible one, uh, which is close, close to home for me because <laughs> I've been very much looking at the, um, the site in Bexhill that they're trying to use. It's a former uh, army uh, military uh, prison, I believe, that was bought by the United Arab Emirates and used as a training facility for one of their airlines uh, for, for many, many years. It was bought apparently last year by a group called Brockwell Group, 
uh, from Bexhill, uh, investors basically, who spent something like six million on it. They've now literally flipped it and sold it to the Home Office for 15 million. And the Home Office haven't even got it operational yet, but they've paid like more than twice what it was worth, basically less than a year later. And it seems incredible that they're so absolutely kind of spendthrift-like with our money. Oh, and, and, and put it this way, I mean, I don't obviously know the finances of Brockwell, but generally, most uh, commercial loans to investing groups like that only require investing groups to put in around 40%, and mm. 60% is done by the lending institution. Right. So they probably wouldn't have even put in $6 million, just as you wouldn't put the full amount of your mortgage in on your house. Right. So the flip for them is going to be much more in terms of percentage terms. But what is really, really daft about this is the way that the government is paying over 100% here, 115, 120% on the price. Mm. Again, in a scenario when this could have been observed and, and monitored, when they knew so many people were coming through. So they could have been able to purchase land like this at much cheaper right. rate. After all, it was their own land in the first place. Well, exactly right. And also they've basically, um, you know, got an awful lot of uh, campaigners down in that part of the world um, who are having meetings on a regular basis with the council. There's a very good chance that it will never house anybody. And then will be left as, as the uh, proprietors, presumably, uh, of a former military prison camp that we've all paid for. They'll just sit there empty. Oh, ab absolutely, until the next person comes along who wants to build, uh, say, housing on it, and then the government will sell it to them at a cheaper rate, and then they'll build lots of housing because we need to expand upon the housing stock for people coming in because we've seen population rise by 5 million in the past 10 years, and we expect another 2 million in the next five years. So as we become an incredibly dense country, we're going to need to build housing. So watch the space, Mike. Maybe you'll be looking at that in a few years' time and saying that the government has sold this to a housing development company for less than the $15 million that they bought it. Well, I bet you can bet your bottom dollar that lots of people <laughs> will be looking at the King model. Uh, this is a guy who, at the turn of this century, was running a caravan park in Canvey Island, right? And when he lost his licence, he, he came up with a bright idea of using the building, uh, a former cinema, to house refugees instead. And that was the beginning uh, of what has now become this absolutely golden ticket that he's got, um, because he's got literally a £60 million guaranteed income over the course of the next six years. It's absolutely extraordinary. Just on that one side, but it, 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 it's, I understand it from the reports, he is the owner of uh, Clear Homes, which has that much bigger contract over a 10-year period with the government. But it just shows really how smart money, if you want to put, call it that way, is actually benefiting and profiting on illegal trafficking of, of people and the asylum process. And every time that people smugglers are making money, an estimate of 300 million this year of transporting people from France to the UK, there are people who are aiding and abetting, in my view, that, that offence by housing them over here, by helping them in uh, illegal criminals, by the government failing to do so, and by uh, countries such as France enabling, not, not stopping this process. Every time we don't do anything, I think we're tangentially aiding and abetting the people smugglers. Now, that might be a controversial line for some people. They're saying we're providing a service. I fully expect accept that. But in reality, every time we do help people, we're actually aiding the people smugglers in their business. Yeah, absolutely right. Because as long as they know if they get here, they can stay, which is currently the state of affairs, uh, they're going to keep coming. There's no question about that. Meanwhile, let's uh, revisit another story that you and I have mentioned many times before. Shemima Begum uh, back in the news. Apparently, there's a court case going on at the moment uh, where uh, her lawyers are representing her and suggesting that she needs to have uh, another go at trying to come back to Britain uh, because she was the victim 
of trafficking. I mean, they pretty much tried everything to try and get her back. We were under the impression that Sajid Javid had ruled out her return. What's the situation as far as you are aware, Stephen? I, actually, I hadn't been following this this particular case because, like so many people, I thought that once the Home Secretary had gone through the full process and denied her her passport and removed her citizenship, that she wouldn't have any more rights. I can only assume that she's going through the European Court of Human Rights process once again, and this is an example of where uh, lawyers are able to utilise a system that is not the United Kingdom's, although we put it into law through our Human Rights Act, to be able to, to bring in people that we do not want, or rather the government does not want. There's clearly some that do, they're benefiting from this once again. Um, um, it all turns to the question of whether we should be part of the European Courts of Human Rights. And what I found fascinating, Mike, I don't know if you saw the story about Macron saying yes. that he is going to deport asylum seekers. And even if they win at the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg, all he'll do is pay a fine. Yeah. And that, that's an interesting approach. Why isn't it our government just doesn't well, utilise that exactly. approach for I mean, I've, I've the said this. Process. I've said this literally for, for, for as many weeks as, as we've all been arguing about whether Britain should leave the ECHR. I said <laughs> it's a much simpler equation than that. You don't need to leave the ECHR. You just need to ignore them like everybody else in Europe does because everybody else in Europe does what they want. You know, Scandinavian countries, Denmark, Sweden and others have all deported uh, all sorts of people out of their country back to their home countries in North Africa or into the Middle East as well. You know, the French don't really adhere to any EU rules. They don't fancy doing it. And as you say, they'll just pay a fine. I'm sure we could do the same. We wouldn't become the pariah of the world, as everybody suggests, and it might actually convince people that the government means business when it says it wants to stop the boats. Because right now, the only thing that's stopping them is the weather. Oh, absolutely. And I would also guarantee you this, Mike. If the government was strong on removing people and deporting them, and irrespective of what the ECHR, there would be some smart business people who would start offering the planes to be able to take them away because they know that they would make some money from it. The very fact that there are no planes leaving and no businessmen making a profit from it is a realisation the government yet hasn't, isn't putting money into actually really removing individuals or have no intention to do so. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Final question, Stephen, on the, the, the crisis in the Middle East uh, between uh, the Israelis and the Palestinians and Hamas and all of that going on. Um, obviously, it's all right if you're Egypt to say we don't want any Palestinian refugees. It's all right if you're Jordan to say we don't want any Palestinian refugees. But apparently it's not all right if you're Britain. No, I, and I agree with this, but we may differ slightly on this, uh, Mike. I, I do genuinely believe that the UN Refugee Convention was meant for circumstances where there was genuinely suffering and fleeing and torture. And when bombs are hitting uh, two and a half million people on the size of uh, the Isle of Wight, which isn't very far from where I live, you can see how condensed that is. And if I do not want to see children of any, any persuasion, religion, colour or creed, being blown up and killed. And I think that this is an opportunity where we could show leadership. Uh, but I do also believe fundamentally the whole world should be doing this. It's not just Britain. Well, it's not it our responsibility alone. Surely, Stephen, it should start with Egypt and, and Jordan, shouldn't it? The neighbouring countries. Oh, I, no, you know. I, abso I absolutely agree. And Egypt and Jordan do have very large Palestinian communities. But I think that this is a situation where every nation that is actually supporting Israel uh, should actually also be able to support those innocent individuals who are being hurt, killed and murdered from this. It's not an individual country's responsibility. This is an international responsibility and it's about being human.
Yeah, but judging by the numbers of people marching on the streets of London to free Palestine, uh, it would seem as though there's already quite a few Palestinian refugees here already. Well, there is. Look, if we look at the figures, when I analyse the number of applications, there is generally about three to three to four thousand every year from asylum applications from Palestine, not all uh, from Palestinians who say they're Palestinians. Again, just as we also noticed in the figures about Iran uh, and Iraq, many people who claim they're from those countries tend not to be from that, as we noticed with the recent individual that was charged uh, with uh, people smuggling uh, and making thousands from it, as you reported on your show last week. So you are always going to get people who are generally not from that country, but we do actually already take in quite a lot as well. Stephen, good to talk to you. Stephen Wolfe there. Uh, thank okay. you very much indeed. He's the Director for the Centre for Migration and Economic Prosperity. Uh, well, the economic prosperity is certainly going in one direction. If you're running a hotel or a chain of hotels or you're running a coach company uh, or you're a people trafficker, you are making a plenty of money. Thank you very much indeed. There's absolutely no problem with your economic prosperity. Uh, we've now found the king uh, of the migrant business and his name is actually King. Incredible. Welcome back. You're watching Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Now uh, it's time for this. Now, some people think that profligacy is a good thing. I'm not one of them. Uh, obviously, it's not a good thing if you're in private business, because if you spend too much money, uh, more money than you take in, then I'm afraid your business won't last very long. This, of course, does not apply to the public sector. Uh, an area which I try to look at uh, with as neutral an eye as possible, but it's very difficult. The Home Office is wasting money hand over fist, and the big problem is it's our money. We've just learned today, thanks to a great article in The Times, that the Home Office have bought a, a disused military prison down in Bexhill in Sussex, not a million miles away uh, from where I take my dog at the weekends for a walk on the beach. The good thing about this disused prison is that it's disused. They want to put migrants in it, and the local people don't want that to happen. But the most ridiculous thing about this story is that it was bought only last year by a group of investors for six million. They've somehow flipped it uh, into more than twice its value. Because why? They found some idiots to buy it. And who were the idiots? The Home Office. And whose money are they using? Ours. So I'd like to say this. Who are the real idiots in this picture? I think it might be us. Can we not do something about this profligacy and this nonsense? That is my taking the mic. Now, you can't say fairer than that. A man that knows a thing or two uh, about looking after the pennies in order to save the pounds, Mr Alex Salmond, the former First Minister of Scotland. Welcome, Alex. Thank you very much it's for... It's a pleasure to be here, mate, and a pleasure to see you back. It's great to be back, and it's great to be back in this wonderful new studio. Uh, we're going to talk about Rishi Sunak. Mm. We're going to talk about a whole bunch of things. How has he survived one year in office, I suppose, is the first question. Um, about seven and a half times longer he's been in than Liz Truss. Yes, he should get a long service medal. <laughs> a long service medal for Tory <laughs> Prime Minister. My achievement. I've yes. lasted a year. He's only lasted a year, really, though, um, because nobody's actually questioned what he's been doing. But when you get to the end of the year and you look at his five pledges and you go, well, none of those have really actually changed. In fact, if they have changed, they've changed for the worse. He hasn't stopped the boats. He hasn't brought the waiting list down the NHS. Inflation, mm, some of it's come down a bit, but nothing really to do with him. Growth, I don't think we've got any. 
I can't remember what the fifth one well, was. Well, exactly. I was, I was just about to congratulate you on being the one person in the country <laughs> who could remember what the five pledges were. It's too, too many. Yeah. People can only remember three things. Yes. Limit the short-term memory. Yeah. So even getting the number of pledges wrong, I mean, I, you know, I think Sunak would have been better to concentrate on one pledge, whatever it might be, because I think that's about his, uh, yeah. about his limit. Well, I think it would be good, wouldn't it, if you could say, right, let's do one at a time. You know, once we've got the one uh, occupied and, and ticked off, then we can have another one. You know, it's a bit like when you're having to deal with somebody who's got various problems, whether they be alcoholic problems or drug problems. You go one step at a time. It's a 12-step programme. Yeah, you know, tomorrow, try and do that. And then the next day, we'll try something else. You know, your, your destiny is to be a political advisor in Downing Street with Ooh. a dying Conservative they can't administration. Afford <laughs> no, they can't afford me. I think <laughs> if I got the call, it would be yet another uh, no from me. Well, I mean, see, the, the reason that Rishi Sunak's still in office is that the Tories know they can't change Prime Minister yet again. Right. Even if they want to, and they probably want to by now. I mean, you know, they say that some people look like Prime Minister. Rishi Sunak doesn't even look like a politician. No. I mean, this, this, is, a, this is a guy who doesn't have empathy mm. even for millionaires. Yeah. This is a guy who's so rich that millionaires are a step below him. It and is people difficult. sense it. Some people have said recently, though, particularly after he went to Israel, that he looks better on the world stage than he does um, at home. And that's sometimes a thing, certainly for American presidents, you know, because American presidents, as, as you'll know from your history, um, is, is, is something that, you know, whenever they've got domestic troubles, they go and start a well, war somewhere. Me, you know, uh, or they go and start flying around the world with the State Department and, and look as if they know what they're doing. Yeah, yeah, because you've got a war zone because it's safer than, than being at home in a, yeah. in a political zone. But that doesn't win you elections. Mm. I mean, look, if I was to say one reason why Rishi Sunak's going down to catastrophic defeat over the next year, which is his last, because he'll go right to the end, there'll be about a year left, so he'll be two years in office, there's about 4 million people who are going to move from fixed-term mortgages mm. at low rates to 8% mortgages yeah. at flexible rates. Right. And each and every one of these families, a lot of whom will be natural Tory voters, are going to say, look, this guy in Downing Street, I can't afford my bills. Mm. Each one of these families will come under the most severe financial pressure to join many, many other mm. millions of families who are already in that position. Yeah. There is absolutely no way he can turn this around. But will they not also have a sort of a reverse ferret effect on that? Because I've also heard this theory purported by people, which is that if you are badly off um, and the Tories are in power, what you won't do is get a different government, which might make you even worse off. Because what I've heard is if people are actually a bit more comfortable, they might say, do you know what, we're fed up with the Tories, we'll kick them out. But if they're actually in the, in the deep doo-doo financially, they won't. Well, that's the Tories' ill-deserved reputation for economic competence. Mm. But you know, there's a story in, uh, I think it's The Guardian today, so I'll treat it with some suspicion. Oh, I haven't Mike. caught up with that yet. Uh, but it's the National Institute of Economic and Social Research mm. pointing out uh, that because they didn't insure against higher interest rates, and remember, they've got a governor of the Bank of England who is pushing up interest yeah. rates month by month, right. you know, 13, 14 times, but they didn't insure against it, the Treasury, and as a result, they've just lost 11,000 million pounds, which is even more mm. than Gordon Brown lost uh, by selling gold at rock bottom prices. Now, it's that sort of thing that dents the Tories' reputation for economic competence, mm. which is already badly dented by, you know, having a governor of the Bank of England who doesn't even have an economics degree. Well, so the, and who also doesn't even know how much money he earns. He can't even remember. Well, he can't, he can't remember his own salary. Which it's didn't, not a great start. I mean, well, I'm with the work. I mean, of course, he was actually in the middle of a peroration 
saying that the workers should tighten their belts and yep. not demand high... Pre <laughs> and then he got asked, what's your salary? Yeah. Oh, I can't remember. Right. You know? Something near half a million quid. I'm <laughs> well, it's a lot sure. more than that. Mike. People <laughs> take a few bonuses <laughs> and all of that. Let's talk about Scotland, because um, since I've properly spoken to you, I think, um, the Labour Party has won a seat mm -hmm. up there that the, the SNP previously held. Mm -hmm. um, what's your take on that? Is it likely that, that, that Starmer and Labour and... Um, and the new uh, Anasawa leader up there can actually win a bunch of seats for Labour? Well, interesting enough, the swing in Rutherglen was very similar to the swing uh, against the sitting party in Scotland, the SNP, mm. than the swing against the Tories mm. in the English by-elections. And also the turnout was right. dismal as well. Oh, yeah. so, so you've basically got two things happening. There's a huge swing against the incumbent party, north and south of the border. Mm. And actually, if you look at the turnout figures, people aren't really that uh, mobilised no. uh, at the press. They're pretty disenchanted, aren't So, you know, Stammer's going to, going to win on current form uh, without doing very much. Now, that should be an opportunity to recover ground mm. because, you know, no, I mean, Stammer looks like he couldn't bust a paper bag in right. terms of political... I mean, impact. I'm old enough to remember the days when um, the Labour Party had 48 or so seats in Scotland. Well, and I'm old enough to remember when opposition leaders like Harold Wilson or, or even Tony Blair, and for all sorts of reasons, particularly the invasion of Iraq, I usually cross myself when I remember when I say Tony Blair's name. Yeah. But as an opposition leader, he was uh, he was impressive. Yeah. Uh, but Stammer's not in that quality, not in that character. Yeah. So the opposition, I mean, the opportunity should be there. The trouble for the SNP at the present moment, I mean, Hamza Yusuf, uh, you know, he's starting to tear up a lot of his predecessor, Michael Sturgeon's mad policies. Yeah. So he's torn up daft fishing policies, he's torn up daft bottle schemes. He, he's uh, He's gone back to a council tax freezer policy borrowed from, uh, from me, which obviously helps people in economic crisis. Mm. But one of the things that he doesn't do, he, he does this you know, one by one and by stealth. Mm. And what he should be doing, in my opinion, is making a big song and dance and What's for the this. point of doing it otherwise? Well, you should be saying, I'm tearing it. It's a new agenda yeah. for a new leader. I'm going to make a stir. But his big weakness, and of course, Alipa's big opportunity, is that for the first time probably in its history, certainly for the first time in a quarter of a century, the SNP has no independent strategy. No. Well, and they announced that with great sort of fanfare, as if that was a good thing. You know, they had their, their conference, and suddenly they said, right... Uh, we're not going to bother for, uh, with some, without having any kind of strategy for independence. We're well, just going to continue on uh, assuming that we'll get there someday. Well, what, what they've said is, uh, you know, it's like the old chant, what do we want independence, when do we want it now? What the SNP are now saying is, what do we want a, a democratic effect? Yes. And when do we want it? Well, no time soon. No. It's not the sort of thing that takes people to the barricades. It's not exactly Braveheart, is it? No, and particularly in an atmosphere where people are losing hope, losing faith, as you can see from the turnout of the battle. You'll never take my democratic arrangement. Well, it's... A <laughs> 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 it's a, you maybe could be an advisor to Hamza Yusuf as well as... as well as Rishi Sunak. He could do with some help. They don't pay as much. Uh, no, no, I know, I've been there. Um, but, I mean, this is the problem in, in, in Scotland for Hamza Yusuf. I mean, he still is kind of perceived as um, the man that was a sort of puppet put in charge before anything happened to Nicola Sturgeon. I see that she's now passed her driving test. I know you asked about this the other day. Well done, Nicola. This means presumably that she'll no longer be a backseat driver and she'll actually sit in the front. I was surprised to see the picture that was put out as a publicity shot that they should have surely put her in a motorhome. Well, it is going to lead to a whole new generation of jokes on what she's going to be driving. But nonetheless, <laughs> let's fair's fair. Congratulations on passing her driving test. Yeah. Well done, Nicola. Um, is she on probation then for a year or something like that? 
Well, you, know, you can't have anybody the same like, age in the car with it. Whatever kind of thing. Hum, so the hum, husband will be okay. Whatever Hamza now thinks of Nicola, <laughs> it would be very much in his interest to try and carve out his own identity as mm. a political leader. And instead of tearing up a, a range of daft ideas, daft policies like self-identification, to, to, you know, by stealth or or trying to quietly bury them in the in the background, he, he should be flamboyantly saying, you know, I'm a, a new first minister with a new agenda. The past right. is the past. The future is me. That's what he should be doing. Right. But he's not doing well, that. He's tearing them up one by one. I would count you as one. Have a legacy that they can look back on. I mean, you can look back on the referendum, um, albeit that you didn't win it, but you got to the point. Well, I, was, where you I, was, had I was preferring to look back and winning an overall majority in a proportional well, parliament. You could have done that, but I think <laughs> no. But I mean, for people outside of Scotland, say they would look at you, Alex Samuels, mm. the man who who got to the polls, uh, an actual question on whether in, independence yeah. for Scotland was the way well, forward, and and you know properly that is a, a decent legacy. But for Hamza Youssef. What is his legacy even going to look like? Well, I tell you what, you know, that's anger I was going to use the word, but, you know, what, uh, what frustrates people like myself and others who spent 25 years replacing the Labour Party as the dominant force in Scottish politics, you know, when, when I left office, although we'd been beaten in the referendum, mm. we had an overwhelming tide towards the SNP. The mm. Labour Party were wiped out yeah. in Scotland. And I, I thought it was just a matter of time. I, you know, I thought effectively the game's over. It's mm. only a question of when independence, not if. Yeah. So it's deeply frustrating for, for people of, of my generation who went through that process over a period, because it did take 25 years to replace the Labour Party in Scotland, to see them being handed back control with no apparent effort whatsoever. It is deeply, mm. deeply frustrating and uh, incidentally a very bad thing for Scotland uh, because the last thing that Scotland needs is the dead hand of the Labour Party back in charge. Well, no, you would say that, but I mean, others would disagree. I would say that. <laughs> uh, you would. Um, but of course, let's talk about your other business that you're an expert in, and that is the banking business, because you were in that business for a very long time mm. uh, before you decided to, to go the other way and become a politician. Um, bankers' bonuses. A banker's bonuses <clears throat> getting a lot of people exercised today. I'm in the minority. Yeah, you're here, the friend of the bankers. We know that. Well, I'm defending. No, I'm not defending the bankers. What I'm defending Must is the free relatives. market. I don't. I don't happen to believe that the banks should have been bailed out. I think that was a mistake at the beginning of back in 2008. Some countries sent them to jail. Uh, well, exactly right. I mean, if you were that, again, profligate is a word I'm using in place of the Home Office. If you were that profligate, and you know what they were doing, you know, NatWest overseas, over in America, uh, Royal Bank of Scotland, uh, were parceling up all these investments, cutting them in, in so many different pieces that uh, it was an absolute disaster waiting to happen. I remember being over in America and talking to my sister about it, who was in the banking business, and she was telling me about how a bus driver in Maryland was suddenly being given a $400,000 um, mortgage to buy a massive house uh, in a very nice part uh, of, of, of the outskirts of Washington, D.C. And as soon, as, of course, as the house prices fell, that was the end of that. Mm. And so they shouldn't have bailed them out. They should have let them die. Similarly, I don't think it's for the EU or any other government to interfere in what a private organisation, albeit publicly owned uh, by shareholders, pays its employees. Well, the, the argument, Mike, is that they get bonuses by taking unreasonable risks. And the idea is to try and stop them being incentivized to, to bring the financial system crashing down. But can I, you know, I worked in the <clears throat> Edinburgh financial sector in the 1980s. Uh, I worked in the Royal Bank of Scotland. 
Now, the, the Royal Bank was a conservative inclined. Mm. They, they weren't particularly right. radical people, but but they were decent people. Mm. Uh, they, they were they cared about their customers. Yeah. They worried about the the, right. the, the situation of customers, and you know, to me, the, the banking industry has, as well. We can see. I mean, as you know, I, I unlike you, I've got little time for for Mr. Farage. But if you look at these uh, comments yeah. from the Nat West, unbelievable about one of their customers. Yeah. Now you would never ever. I've had that no. in the Royal Bank of Scotland in the 1980s. No. I mean, the, the customer... And that is a much bigger problem in some ways than, than the, bon the bonus problem, because I disagree with you to say that they're encouraged to take greater and greater risks. They're well, not really encouraged, well, but they're encouraged to be rewarded for a okay. deal that works well. Right, well, go back to the Big Bang, as it was called. Yeah. And, the, and you've got a situation where if you were a kind of... Uh, a common sense, normal clearing banker who cared about your customers and tried to keep everything correct and, mm. and, and had you know, went through your whole career with total probity, uh, you got so much money. If you were a, a fly-by-night merchant banker, you got a lot more. A lot more. And if you had colourful braces in the city, you yep. got a lot more than that. I, I, mean, there I is knew a, many there, people like that. There is an argument, Mike, that if you incentivise people to take unreasonable risks, then don't be surprised if they start to erode the yeah, foundations of the financial system. But that's precisely why, if they take a risk and they get exposed and they get done, then therefore uh, you let them go to the wall. You don't save them. You don't bail them out. You don't go, oh, oh I see. now so, we've got some so money for your, you. your argument, on the one hand, you'd let them make pots of money, but on the other hand, you'd send them to jail when, when they were caught well, with their fingers on the well, till. I'd send them to jail if they broke the law, certainly. Yeah. And I would also, like Nick Leeson did, and I would also make sure that the system was not... Uh, capable of being brought down. I mean, I remember the Bearings Bank problem. I remember the uh, uh, the uh, BCCI problems. I remember the the Indian banking crisis. I was well involved in that. Another story for another time. Um, but the fact that uh, that the British merchant banks were lending money without any kind of collateral to uh, to dodgy banks uh, who mm. were who were doing all sorts of things in in faraway places. Yeah, sure, but and that was <clears throat> not should never have been capable of bringing the country but, banking but was business down, but it was. Another difference was Johnson Matthews that the financial right. authorities, that the Bank of England were widely respected. You know, when they could bring the banks together mm. and find a method out of the country lending crisis. Yeah. Uh, when the, there wasn't a financial service authority. I mean, you know, how, how they have to, the financial system survive for so long mm. without the financial services authority? Or, or, or it's because you, you take people who fail in the financial services authority and mm. you make them governor of the Bank of England. Well, that's and then the you're surprised. Listen, <laughs> and then you're surprised. We're out of time. Uh, I'm going to have to put a cap on your speaking engagement here because, uh, Sir Alex Hammond, I'm going to call you that. Thank you very much indeed. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. You were listening to myself and Alex Salmond having a very spirited conversation about bankers' bonuses. And now, uh, for the latest news from the City of London, uh, bankers are apparently popping bottles of Bollinger uh, if they've managed to come into work today because the cap on their bonus is apparently going to be scrapped from the end of the month. I actually think that it should be scrapped. And I'm now joined by former Chief Executive of the British Bankers Association, Angela Knight. We'll find out what she makes of it. Angela, very good morning to you. Good morning. Welcome to the new, improved uh, Independent Republic of Mike Graham, uh, our new home, which we're very happy with. Um, I think bankers' bonuses is not the purview of anybody other than the banks that employ the bankers, is it? No, you're, you're right there. Yeah. That is where it sits. Yeah. It sits with the, bank, with the bank itself. It sits mm. with the board of the bank yeah. and their remuneration committee, and they've got to have the ability to pay when they want to pay and take away yeah. as well. Right. What, what is called clawback, malice and clawback mm. these days, is a set of requirements which says to the board of the bank, well, if they didn't do very well, even though it may be a, a previous year, you can get that money 
back right. of them. And does that actually happen? Yes, it does. It yeah. has started to happen now. Right. It didn't a few years ago, right. but now it really does. I wish we does. could do that in the public sector, because I was saying to Jeremy Carl before <laughs> yeah, me, you know, it's all talking. very well when you look at people like chief executives of councils who get paid sort of half a million quid a year, and they always say, oh, well, we have to employ the best people. We have to pay commensurately with the private sector. But they never really seem to have any performance criteria whether they've done the job well or not. And that's a very valid point, mm. because it's you've got to get your performance criteria right. Yeah. Pay when it meets that performance and not when it doesn't. Right. And as I say, being able to sort of retrospectively say, hang on, we're not going to pay you that right. is a very good thing. And what it does as far as the individual and the bank is concerned is when you have a good year, you can pay it. Mm. And when you haven't had a good year, you don't pay it. Yes. Whereas if it mostly goes into fixed salary, as you say, it gets paid regardless. Mm. The problem with bankers' bonuses is that it became totemic, and still to this day is totemic. Yeah. That, you know, the sort of view on the street is it's always a banker's fault, they're paid too much right. and they shouldn't have a bonus. Yeah. And one of the interesting things that has happened about, you know, the narrative behind making this change is it hasn't come from a politician, it hasn't come from a lobbying group. Right. It's actually the regulators themselves right. who said, look, what it was intended to do, that cap, it hasn't done it. Mm. We are out of step globally, and we are a global financial centre, whatever one mm. might like to say, this is still the biggest or one of the biggest global financial centres and arguably the most international. So actually the huge mobility that goes on, people coming here for three, mm. four years, going elsewhere and vice versa, means that we do need to be in step on pay and quite a few other things right. as well. So are you saying that, that Britain uh, being outside <laughs> of the bankers' bonus at the moment, saying that bankers can't have or what bankers do have a cap. That's not what everybody else is doing. No, that's right. I mean, a lot of people signed up to it and not many people implemented it. Right. There's a whole load of things, not many people. I think we're the only country who ring-fenced the retail bank right. saying that's the way to protect it. It wasn't. Right. But, you know, this out-of-stepness tricky. Because the banking sector has changed irrevocably, hasn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. I mean, my, my sister worked in the sort of Wall Street city-type companies for, mm. for, for decades, and so I know a bit about it just from talking to her and seeing the yeah. kind of things that, that used to happen. Um, and, and, you know, some might say, thank God they don't happen anymore. Um, but it seems to me that they were a lot more successful uh, back in, the, in, in those days. Banks seem to have now become these kind of, uh, uh, sort of cathedrals to the woke, uh, where they'd rather tell you what your carbon footprint is uh, than lend you some money at a reasonable rate. Well, you have to, you have to do all this business about carbon footprint. There's do you? Yes. There's diverse, Why? Uh, there is regulatory you know, framework that sits around, and part of that regulatory yeah. framework includes uh, diversity, inclusion, and it also includes something about... So is this government-inspired or is it regulatory-inspired? Mixture. Mixture. It comes... Well, there, there is, as you know, there's a governmental push. And actually, I shouldn't really say that. There's a big political push. Yeah. Because we, like many other countries, are signed up to uh, a goal which is all about net zero. Right. Uh, and then, this is a load of old cobblers, in my view. Yes, it might be. But I'm not entirely sure that I'm going to agree with you on well, that. Well, we can disagree what, on many things. But what I would say is that that is fine to right. sign up to a target... Mm. But if you're going to do that, you've got to have a clear and sensible yeah. plan. Well, and part of that plan has got to be allowing the banking sector absolutely. to finance not just new energy, yeah. but also existing energy. So you can have your lights mm. on in here. No, listen, I mean, my, my view of all of this is that I'm more than happy to buy an electric car. I'm more than happy to get a heat pump. I'm more than happy to say that if we get to net zero, we will save the planet. If anybody can tell me that that will definitely help. But nobody can. Because every time I ask them, they haven't got an answer. And also, if it was cheaper, if it was better, if it was more efficient, and if it made the business of 
business actually more efficient, then I'd be all for it. But it gets in the way. I mean, look at um, the, the, the chair of NatWest who just recently departed these shores, yeah. um, Dame Allison. You know, she's going to be remembered for putting in sustainable carpets yes. in every NatWest branch. What she's also going to be remembered for uh, is screwing up the bank's policies on making money and being obsessed with diversity. So what I, what I, what I, where I do agree with you and where I don't is this. First of all, I do agree with you that the going beyond what is reasonable, yeah. forget it. Right. I'm not in favour of that. I'm not in favour of doing nothing right. either. I'm, 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 I'm a pragmatist. Mm. I just sit in the middle, which sounds, makes yeah. me terribly boring. And, and that is, you know, do we need to be a little bit more... Uh, aware of our, the world we live in, yeah. environmentally aware, sustainably aware. Of course we do. Do we need to make sure that we have women, we have uh, others in jobs, we, you know, we look at ethnicity in a proper way? So some of those real barriers that were there when I was uh, young and just mm. starting out in, in, in the commercial world are no longer there. But what we shouldn't do is go over the top. Exactly. And we have a tendency to go over the top. We are operating, banking industry, financial services industry, operates within a, a framework set by government, by regulators, and we have several regulators, mm. including uh, audit regulators, yeah. if you like. I mean, to which be honest... puts a set of, set of requirements. However, right. let me finish my sentence. Sorry, go on. You are so right that the what the business of a bank is, is to lend you, me, and the and business world... Uh, the right amount of money at the right, right. price for a decent yes. period of time. And also, Full stop, and also don't take our savings and lend them to people who can't afford to pay you back, because oh. that's the other problem that they got involved in. But also, let's have a Bank of England uh, set up so that they know when the interest rates are going to need to be adjusted, rather than just sitting there blatant, you know, blamelessly staring off into space and making sure they've got gender-neutral toilets on the seventh floor, you know, when they didn't see any of it coming. And then, in fact, at one point, um, Bailey came out and said that the, the head of the governors of the Bank of England, uh, he couldn't do anything about inflation, which is literally his job. One of, the, one of the things I always feel not to be is the person in the spotlight yeah. <laughs> having the responsibility of dealing with situations when they really get tricky. Yeah. Now, I totally agree that stepping in early is better than sitting back yeah. and waiting. However, by uh, tackling inflation by interest rates, which is a time-honoured method, mm. it's not necessarily the only method, but it's a time-honoured method, which we do here and is done in central banks around the world, its effect, if it is going to be effective, it has to make people not want to spend, not be able to spend. Their disposable income goes down and stuff gets more expensive. And the population really, really does not like that. Mm. It fails to see why it should feel the adverse mm. consequences of actions that have to be taken for not uh, the problem of today, but, well, the yes. problem of today, but well. the problem of the years ahead. And that, the fact that we have done what we've done in this country, which is supported wages as well as being uh, harsh on interest rates. Mm. What is happening here is that we will have interest rates higher for longer and actually people's pay is caught up. The net effect, therefore, is not quite zero, but it is not as strong as it should be. Mm. The country that took really strong action was the US because they don't, they, to say they ignore their citizens is unfair, but they don't have anything like the same sort of welfare state no. or mentality about right. protecting people. And that is a big problem. But Europe is in the same problem yeah. as us. Of course, say. because yeah. they follow the same dopey policy that comes out of the EU. But that's another story. Let's talk about Rishi Sunak because he's been yeah. in power now for a year, which is hard to believe, to be honest. I mean, yeah. somebody told me that this week. I was like, really? Does it seem like a year? Um, what's your assessment of well, his 
financial stewarding yeah. of the economy. I mean, it, it feels like both longer than a year and shorter than mm. a year. What it doesn't feel like is a year. No. Um, what I think he's done is he has solved carefully, worked his way carefully through some of the really tricky problems and, and good on him. He's a clear problem solver. He comes with that sort of written on his back as uh, in all his life from school onwards. And I think he's shown it. If it, You know, it's been an improvement for the whole Northern Ireland, Southern Ireland trade, all that sort of messy bit. He's been brave in saying what so many people have known for a long time, and that is um, the cost of HS2 is out of control. Yeah. And it's, you know, out of control, sort of written glorious technicolours. Yeah. You don't have to... And he's going to throw a few hundred million at buses. Uh, well, if you live in the north of England, what you're concerned about is your local transport, both local trains, yeah, local it's not buses, just the north of England. operating much better. Yeah, my and kids live in the south of England, and they can't get more than one bus a day. To yeah, go to well, college. there you go, there you go. You know, you, you've got you've got another answer. So there's a lot of those things that I think he's done extremely well. He sits with a really, really difficult financial problem, though, and that is throughout the pandemic, of course, this country borrowed a lot of money yeah. to pay its people to stay at home, mm. find in order... That was also a good, that was a good idea of his to pay for all that. Well, well, it was a collective idea. Don't think. He, he, was, he was the Chancellor at the time. If you recall, the pressure at the time was not, oh, don't do anything, just stay at home, don't get paid money. The pressure at the time was to hold the economy as best you can. Mm. So what that has done is borrowed a lot of money added to our debt. The reality of today is that just as if we were people, we have got to pay back our debt. Yeah, but and he didn't ask us if is... we wanted to go into debt. That's the problem that a lot of people have. But a lot if of he people had, think you know, it's very unfair. If, if he had asked us at the time, do you want to be paid to stay at home, what do you think the answer would have been? Overwhelmingly, yes. Not necessarily. However, uh, I don't agree for, with you. This is for another time. And, and then there's this sort of little mantra which says, oh, just tax the rich and it'll be all right. And, you no, know, I don't believe that either. We are, you're quite right not to believe it. They're taxed up. That's another reason already. why bankers' bonuses so, should be resolved and set, and set because uh, they the more they get paid, the more tax they, they pay. They pay a lot of tax yeah. on them. But you know, as I do, that the reality of having proper discussion in the public domain almost doesn't take place. Yeah, you know, it does on led, this show. It's led by Twitter. It does on this does show. Does on this show. Because oh, I say the things that people don't like saying. And sometimes people disagree, which is great. Andrew, yeah. we must have you back, but we've got to run. I've got to, I've got to get to, on to other matters. But I'm going to ask you one quick one. Okay. Um, marks out of 10, then, for Rishi's first year. Give him eight. Eight? Wow. Yes. That is high. Absolutely. That is really high. I'm shocked. Absolutely shocked. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed. Thank Coming you. up, uh, this year does mark the 30th anniversary of the signing of the Oslo Accords, a landmark effort for peace between Israel and the Palestinians. But yet, as current events in Gaza have made clear, any sign of calm does not seem to be on the horizon. Here to discuss this further with me is columnist for Unheard, Thomas Farsi. Good morning, Thomas. Hi, good morning. Thanks very much indeed for, for joining us. This is a story um, which obviously has taken a tragic turn, but it's been going on really for decades. Um, where yeah. do you see it at the moment in terms of that kind of time frame? If you look along since the days of Yasser Arafat, since the days of um, conversations going on at the White House, since the days of, um, you know, a two-state solution, you know, are we further along or have we sort of fallen off a cliff? No, I think we've never been uh, further, uh, you know, from the chance of reaching a lasting peace than, than we've ever been. Um, but what I try to do in, I, I just written an article, you know, where I go over the history of that, of the Israeli-Palestinian peace process. And in fact, uh, there are a lot of myths and misconceptions uh, around that process. Uh, I, I think a lot of people think that 
uh, we often were, you know, we were very close to reaching a deal uh, that would have given Palestine a its own state. And uh, I think a lot of people also think that due to the intransigence of the Palestinians, uh, you know, that that deal was never actually um, uh, reached. And so I think a lot of people uh, see Israel as having offered uh, Israel, uh, I mean, Palestine, its own state and the Palestinians are refusing that. Um, and in fact, when you look at the actual uh, at the actual deals that were proposed, if you look at the actual negotiations, what you see is that, in fact, there was a good deal of intransigence on both sides, um, uh, including the Israeli side, because if you look at, for example, the I mean, the first time that Israel actually proposed to um, the Palestinians their own state was only in 2000. So I think that that already says a lot. So until 2000, even though the Palestinians, uh, you know, and the Palestine Liberation Organization led by Arafat had accepted the existence of the state of Israel, you know, way back in the 80s and had in fact, you know, was ready to accept a two-state solution, essentially going back to uh, the pre-1967 um, borders as far back as the 80s, it wasn't until the Camp David summit in 2000 that Israel actually proposed um, giving Palestine its own state. Uh, so this was a big step forward. But when you look at the details of the proposal, what you see is that, in fact, what that state amounted to was a degree of self-administration over Gaza and over parts of the West Bank, not even all the West Bank, parts of the West Bank, uh, you know, because there are you know, hundreds of uh, Israeli settlements, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of Israeli settlers that live in the West Bank, uh, which would not have been removed under that agreement. So what you have is a, a, you know, a West Bank, a Palestinian West Bank that looks a bit like a Swiss cheese. Mm. Uh, so kind of enclaves in some cases surrounded by um, Israeli um, settlements and the Gaza Strip. And of course, the two territories are separated, uh, not to mention the fact that the external borders uh, would have been controlled by Israel. Of course, much of the security would have been controlled by Israel. Uh, Gazan uh, airspace waters uh, would have been controlled by Israel. So, you know, it wasn't it, it really wasn't something uh, that anyone would consider, you know, amounting to you know actual independence to an actual uh, uh, state. Uh, so it's really no wonder that that um, uh, offer was ultimately rejected by the by the Palestinians. But at the same time, I think it would be also wrong to simply blame the Israeli government because if you look at the poll, what the polls said in Israel back in the late '90s and early 2000s, they thought that the government was already offering too much to the Palestinians. And so what you have is essentially an existential. Uh, you know, a, 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 a disagreement over what the Palestinians should uh, should have. Uh, what was too little for the Palestinians at the time was considered to be too much by most Israelis. Um, and so it's no wonder that the two sides really did not come to an agreement and couldn't find any middle ground in the end. But I think it's important to realize that, uh, you know, this was also because the offer on the table was actually wasn't this, uh, uh, you know, great deal that a lot of people uh, probably uh, think it was. And so, um, but I mean, and the really tragic part is that if these disagreements were that big uh, 20 years ago, when the domestic situation uh, in both the Palestinian territories and in Israel was, uh, 
much less polarized than it is uh, today. Uh, that means that, of course, the chance that any chance of reaching a you know sensible agreement today uh, is 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 even further away. I mean, not only because of what is clearly what is happening in Gaza, of course, which in itself will seed uh, will will uh, will sow the seeds of future violence, but because extremists in both camps have become more powerful than ever. We have an ultra-nationalist government in Israel, which has made openly genocidal statements concerning the fate of the people in Gaza, concerning the fate of the Palestinians. Netanyahu, in September, went to the UN and showed a map of Israel where the Palestinian territories didn't even exist anymore. And he presented that as his vision of the new, of what he called the new Middle East. And so clearly you have, you know, Netanyahu himself and factions within the Israeli government who that, that clearly aim at essentially ethnically cleansing uh, what they consider to be, uh, you know, uh, Israel um, of the Palestinians. And I think when a lot of people look at what is happening in Gaza today, and they state they they clearly see that it's not an anti-terrorist operation aimed at wiping out Hamas. It's a terrorist operation aimed at causing as much uh, uh, death and destruction in Gaza that Israel can get away with. With I think the quite clear aim of um, uh, you know expelling as many Gazans from the Gaza Strip mm. that Israel can uh, again get away with, which won't be all the Gazans, but I think that. You know they are hoping to expel a good number of of Gazans, and so it's pretty clear. You know that well, this, thing, doesn't, Thomas, this doesn't this doesn't end well yeah, in any way. But let me, let me just interrupt you, Thomas, for a second. The point yeah. about the the problem surely is that it's an intractable problem because if you've got Netanyahu on the one hand saying that he wants an Israeli state to not include um, a place where Palestinians call home, if you like, there are already Palestinians who live in Israel. Um, and work in Israel, and, and, and there are plenty of, of people who are not necessarily uh, of the Jewish faith who, who live in Israel. I presume he sees that as the future, whereby there would still be Palestinians living in Israel. They just wouldn't have um, a Palestinian homeland, if you, if you might want to call it that. But on the other hand, you've got the Palestinians, regardless of Hamas, um, many of whom would like to see the destruction of Israel backed by Iran, backed by uh, Hezbollah in Lebanon. So I don't really see any way out of this at all. I just don't think there is in any way, shape or form um, a solution at all. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's, uh, you know, I think when it comes to Hamas, uh, I think it's, it's important to uh, make a difference between the Hamas charter and clearly the Hamas charter is genocidal. It yeah. does call for the you know, death or the expulsion of all uh, uh, Jews from what they consider to be Palestinian land. But at the same time, it would be, I think, naive uh, to uh, deny the fact that, you know, politically speaking, Hamas has also shown a great degree of flexibility over the years, whether that was announcing ceasefires or even uh, being uh, willing to accept a two-state solution as far back as in 2004. So, so that's I think off that's, the table you, now. You have to take that into consideration. Isn't the two-state two solution now off the table? Absolutely. I mean, but the really dramatic part of all this is that when you look at the actual proposals and at the actual situation on the ground, you wonder if there was ever a chance for an actual two-state solution. Uh, you know, if you look at what the West Bank has been since the mid-90s, again, as I said, this Swiss cheese of uh, Israel, uh, of, of Palestinian enclaves and, uh, and, and Israeli settlements, 
you know, even back then, it was almost impossible to conceive a geographically coherent um, two-state solution encompassing, you know, most of the uh, most of the West Bank, and if, that's one of the reasons why that agreement didn't really um, come to uh, come into being. Of course, now for political reasons, it's even harder to uh, imagine. You know, the settlements are much more than they were twenty years ago. There's way more settlers than there were twenty uh, than there were twenty years ago. But at the same, so a two-state solution at the moment does seem as inconceivable yeah. as ever it but does. at the same time kind of one state solution that you were pointing at earlier uh that's really not what netanyahu has in mind because let's not forget that uh you know that the for is israel conceives itself understandably as a jewish state yeah. which has to maintain Thomas, its gotta, jewish character and a majority of jews we've got to stop we've got to stop Thomas. sorry i must, majority I, must of I must stop you we've got to yeah. move on i'm sorry we're out of time thank you very much indeed i think that's a pretty good summation of what uh, is the problem here uh, in the middle east that nobody can really find a solution nobody can really agree on anything nobody can really understand what it is that hate has done to that particular region of the world it really is quite an extraordinary state of affairs going to talk about Storm Babbitt now because it battered the country, flooded hundreds of homes. Some people are still trying to figure out what to do about the numbers uh, of, of pieces of property uh, that have been ruined. Uh, we're going to talk now to Dale Vince, who is, of course, uh, a man who comes on the show on a regular basis, self-proclaimed green industrialist, founder of Ecotricity, former Just Stop Oil funder. He's given that up now because he's worked out they're all a bunch of bozos. Uh, he's been calling for climate denial to be banned. He actually put a tweet out, unbelievably aimed at me and Julia Hartley Brewer saying climate denial is dangerous and should be illegal. Now, he might have been in a bad mood because his vegan football team, Forest Green Rovers, uh, had their clash with Mansfield uh, postponed because of poor weather. Now, Dale, uh, welcome to the show. I know that, uh, that you and I have, uh, have clashed on this in the past, but I've taken a bit of exception uh, to you targeting me and blaming me for the climate because uh, you're the guy that's supposed to be fixing the climate and apparently everything you're doing is not having any effect. Well, I'm blaming you for the climate denial, not for the climate, Mikey. And actually, climate denial, though, <clears throat> I have to say, is a part of the what problem. What do you because think it, that is? It confuses though? people. It, it sows confusion, and, it, and therefore it slows down the progress that we urgently need to make. And the little bit of flooding that cancelled that game at Mansfield, if you look at the video online, and I know that you have, the city was flooded. Yeah. There were rivers running down the roads. It wasn't a waterlogged yeah. pitch. It was a waterlogged city. And do it's you know, exceptional. Do you, know, do you know, hang on, Dale, do you know what the name of that road is that was being flooded by the water? I don't know. Tell me. It's called River Road. Tell me. It's called River Road uh, because it gets flooded <laughs> on a regular flooded. basis. In fact, yeah. if you bothered, just, no, hang on, if you bothered, if you bothered to read, no, if you bothered to read some of the replies on that tweet that you put out, and I think we can see it uh, very shortly because I want people to see the kind of nonsense you're putting out there is supposedly, you know, honest <laughs> to goodness, uh, actual truth. You know, the fact is that Mansfield has flooded on a regular basis throughout history because it's just one of those places. And yes, you can argue all sorts of things have changed. But the things that have changed have also been because of environmental controls have been put on by people like you urging for them to be done, like the dredging of rivers, which no longer happens, like the refusal by councils to completely clear the drains, which no longer happens, by parts of the, the country being built on by developers because they were floodplains before and now uh, they have water running through them. It's hardly surprising. Um, and I just don't understand why you would call somebody like me a climate denier. I don't even know what that means. What do you mean by that? Is everything you just said, Mike. 
you're saying that it's nothing to do with the climate. These bizarre and extreme weather that? occurrences that, that keep you just said it. You said it's about planning. It's about not dredging rivers. Well, is that you not gave part a whole of it? host of other reasons. You gave a whole host of reasons for flooding in Mansfield. When in fact, if you look at the data, the weather in 2023 already is off the charts in all respects globally. Yeah, and you know, scientists are very clear. They can give you a whole long list of of extreme temperatures and rainfalls and stuff like that. This is unprecedented. The planet is hotter now. No, than it's been in no, 100,000 years. No, but don't... Yeah, you see, trouble, trouble you, Dale, no, the trouble with you, Dale, is that you're unwilling to admit that some things might be possible. Only one thing for you is possible, and it's climate change. But let's face it, oh, you know, no, we have no, never been... Not... Wait, hang on. We have never been more um, climate-friendly, if you want to call it that. We have never been more green in this country. We have never done more uh, to punish people for driving around in petrol and diesel cars. We're going to outlaw them, for heaven's sake, coming up soon. We've never done more that for taxing people uh, who want to fly uh, and, and go around uh, spreading, you know, carbon everywhere. Uh, we've never been harder on people um, who wish to live their lives as uh, freely as they possibly can. And yet, apparently, according to you, it's not doing any good. And uh, I'm sorry, but there's a lot of nonsense in there, Mikey. We aren't taxing flying. Well, there's been no area. increases in the tax on flying. The ban on d new diesel and petrol like, cars well, has been pushed taxing... back to 13 years from no, now. It's hardly, it's hardly oppressing anybody. Rubbish. It's hardly oppressing anybody, is it? It's 13 no, listen, years from now. Are you telling me that there is no tax on flying into a, in a, on a passenger plane, which is a green tax? Are you saying that's not true? I'm saying when you said we've increased the tax on flying, that's not true. Yes, we have. There used to be no tax. <laughs> there used to be no environmental tax on flying. Correct there's, or not there's correct? Al there's, there's almost no tax on flying now. There's no fuel duty on flying now. Why? You, Why is no, there no fuel well, duty well, on obviously flying? Obviously, the, the, well, you probably fly over on a private jet. If you buy a commercial uh, flight ticket, you go and look at how much it is and you go and look at what all the taxes are for and the taxes are for the environment. They were put on by Gordon Brown and they remain there. So people are paying through the nose to fly because of people like you who are trying to price them out of the market. No, flying's dirt cheap. You know that. No, it isn't. It is. Absolutely not. Cheap. It used to be dirt cheap. And there's no fuel cheap. duty. There's it used no to be, fuel duty. It used to be dirt cheap. But if you buy a ticket and it's £100, you can guarantee that £65 of that is tax, isn't it? Well, if you buy a gallon of petrol, you can guarantee that 85% of that is tax. And that's been existing for decades. Yeah, and that hasn't stopped you people buy a buying pack of petrol, cigarettes. has it? You buy a pack of cigarettes, 99% tax, I reckon. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Been like that for decades. Yeah, all right. But, but, the point, but we but tax the, bad things, Mike. We tax bad things like smoking, like alcohol, and and like fuel, burning fossil fuels. It's poisoning the air that we breathe. Forty thousand Britons a year die from car fumes. That's rubbish. a government that's statistic. That's not true. Government that is categorically statistic. incorrect. That is not true. <laughs> not that is based on a lot of old on. cobblers, which was put out no. by the UN, which is now a completely discredited it's government, body. UK after, government. It's no, it's not. No. no, it's absolute rubbish. No, it's it is an. UK S it's another. Statistic. No, it's another one of these models. That that people say is true because it suits your agenda. What I'm saying to you, yeah. Dale, is that you've been campaigning and you've been... How long have you been running your eco-friendly um, company, Ecotricity? How long has that been going? Oh, it must be nearly 30 years. 30 years, and you've achieved the square root mm. of bugger all then. So why don't you just give up? Well, let me tell you... Let me tell you this. When I started, there was no renewable energy in our country. Today, we're at nearly 50% green electricity on the grid. Yeah, is but, that it's obviously not, but it's obviously not doing any good. But it's obviously not doing well, any good, is it? Not. Because you've got <laughs> flooded Mansfield and you can't play your football match. So you might as well stop trying because you're clearly having no impact yeah. whatsoever. But I'm not good at it, right? You know that. Well, and I'm not, not going to stop good. telling you that climate denial is dangerous. Yeah, well, I'm not a climate denialist because you, haven't, you still haven't actually 
determined what that is. You still haven't given me a definition. Give me the definition of a climate denialist. Well, I think what, what you say is in effect to deny that we're living in a man-made climate crisis. What? And that these extreme, these extreme weather events that we experience it's are not, not just a normal, event. not just a normal pattern. No. They are extreme. There's no. denial right there. Well, have, we're living know? in, in well, times well, of extreme you. weather. Well, let me tell you. Yeah, tell How do what? you explain the fact that Mansfield has been flooded more often over the course of the last 100 years than almost every major town in this country? How do you explain that uh, 10 yeah, of the you answer my question. we've ever had Why don't you answer my have, question? have been in the last 10 years? Mike, you can pick one extreme example and, and, well, that's and what tell you me did. something that may or may not be true, but can it doesn't matter. Can we have a matter. look at Dale's Just tweet? Look can at we have the a look data. at this flood Look at the global data. Look at the global data. 10 of the hottest years uh, that have been recorded have been in the last 10 years. How long have they We're been recording them? To an How long, unlivable hang on. planet. How long have they been recording them, Dale? Scientists tell us right now that the global temperature is the highest it's been in 100,000 years. And I know right. you'll say our oh, science, what science do they know? Science wasn't there even around 100,000 <laughs> years go. ago. So they can't even that tell mean that. They can't look. They're just making they, it up, you, Dale. Oh, my. Come on. Come They're on. Just, you know yeah, let's have that. a look at your tweet. Let's have a look at the divisive you know that, tweet. Mike. Not that tweet. I mean We've, the tweet that's got the flooding on it. Have we not got that? <laughs> Can we have the video of the flooding, please? Because that's what we want to see. Here we go. Um, Here's the water That's just running one down. Part of Mansfield. The, the, the road, That's the name, one road. The, name the whole of, of the city was the, flooded. The name of the road is River Road, right? They call it River Road because every now and again it turns into a river. Pop quiz. They don't call just it nonsense. Road Road. They don't call it, nonsense. you know, Concrete Road. They call it River Road because look, it turns into a river. And you should know that. Yeah, right. And you are a man yeah. in a position of some power, Mr. Vince, and you should not be putting out this kind of dangerous <laughs> propaganda. Let me tell you this. That's a nice twist. That's Let me nice tell you twist, this. Uh, Roger says this. Oh, let's see if the public believes you, right? And if you look on that no. tweet, you'll know that they won't. Roger says, had storms like this in the past, for any individual to advocate it should be illegal to have a different opinion is a path the UK should not go down. Ant says, Dale Vince is insane. If we have more rain than usual, it should be viewed as a gift for the coming year. What we should be doing is building infrastructure to make use of the rainfall, capture it for drinking, sanitation, irrigation and hydroelectric power. Uh, Oscar says, I think we should make eco-activism a criminal offence. Checkmate, I win. So there you go. I think it you is. haven't got the people on your side, offense. man. It's been made a criminal offence already, actually, by our government. What has? But, uh, you know, listen, you've read, out, you've read out three quotes from three people. That does not mean I Do don't have to read out another on my three? side. I've got another three 70%. here for you. 70% of the British public want more done on the climate crisis no, than is being done, right? No, the don't. people are with me, No, actually. they're not. The people are yes, really yes. not. The people are not with you, Dale. Your, your audience you is not representative. Yes, it is. It's representative of a great no. many people in this country whose voices are getting louder because we've been pushed around for too long by the net zero fundamentalists, people like you, <laughs> who are an absolute disgrace. You want everybody to be arrested and put in prison because they don't agree with you. I think that's shocking. Yeah, I think that's a silly thing to say. Well, you've just said you want climate denialism I, to be made illegal, but you haven't even denied, you haven't it. even defined what it is. I just did. I told you it. No, you and haven't. then you were speechless. I no, did. I've I never been you. speechless in my life. Certainly not. Anyway, listen, Dale, it's good to see you. I'm <laughs> you glad to see me. I'm glad to see that there is one chink of light uh, in our conversations, in that you have give me now a smile. you've worked out. Give me a smile, I will Mike. give you a smile. Uh, you've worked out that just stop oil are a waste of space, a waste of time, and you're not giving them any more of your hard-earned money. So well done. Next up, stop giving money to the Labour Party. That wasn't true uh, either. Next month, <laughs> next next month, stop giving money to the Labour Party. We'll be friends next again. Month. I'll see you later. Take it easy. There's my big see smile there, for you. There you go. See you, Dale. <laughs> bye bye. to talk about something different. Because if the Duke and Duchess of Montecito 
you know, those Sussexes thought that jetting off to LA would stop people taking the mickey out of them. Uh, they were sadly wrong. Uh, here's what Family Guy did this week. Fine, I'll go it alone. Just like Meghan Markle and Prince Harry. Sir, your millions from Netflix for no one knows what. Put it with the rest of them. Babe, time to do our daily $250,000 sponsored Instagram post for Del Taco. I shouldn't have left the made-up nonsense. Uh, you do actually wonder whether he does believe that now. I shouldn't have left the made-up nonsense. It was so much easier than this. They weren't even the first animated show, of course, to mock them, because this was South Park, if you remember, a few months ago. We want privacy! We want privacy! Hey, thanks for having us on the show. It's so awesome to be here. It's great. So let me start with you, Sam. You've lived a life with the royal family. You've had everything handed to you, but you say your life has been hard, and now you've written all about it in your new book, Win. Yes, that's right, friend. You see, my wife and I... I was totally like, you should write a book because your family's, like, stupid, and then so are, like, journalists. So you hate journalists. That's right. And now you wrote a book that reports on the lives of the royal family. Right. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. And there is, of course, no uh, answer to any of that, but we're going to seek one uh, because I'm delighted to be joined by showbiz journalist and host of the Today for Daily podcast, the one and only Kinsey Schofield. Kinsey, a very good uh, morning to you, just about. Yeah. Um, Mike, there's no one else I'd like to recap this <laughs> with more than you. I get such a kick out of seeing two people that take themselves so seriously um, become a parody over here. I mean... I think that this is probably Megan's worst nightmare. I think it must be, because the one thing that they hate is people, as you say, making fun of them. She wants to be taken seriously. She's so desperate to be taken seriously, you know, that she looks uh, the right way all the time. She knows when the camera is on her. She always has this thoughtful little glance towards Harry. I mean, I wonder whether that uh, uh, Family Guy skit that we've just seen, where he says, I wish I'd stayed where I was, effectively. Um, I wonder if that's more true than we know. Well, I mean, it certainly would uh, justify some of the headlines we've been seeing recently about Harry being homesick and wanting to find a home back over there. But, you know, if, if they do want to pursue a career in Hollywood and um, because we do hear that that's Megan behind wants to become the next Oprah Winfrey. She's she's going to make this movie Meet Me at the Lake. It's going to make her a power player in, in Hollywood, in Tinseltown. If they really do want to have that kind of success, or even if Megan wants to go the goop route and be a celebrity influencer, they've got to shake the idea of them being a parody. Mm. That's crucial to their brand. You know, Dior's not going to want to work with somebody that the public sees as a joke. Right. They want to work with sophistication and somebody that's chic. Uh, so they've got to put their heads together and figure out how they distance themselves from some of these things like South Park and Family Guy. Right. Because that's the other problem, isn't it, that Spotify found out the hard way um, that actually they're not that popular. You know, they obviously were under the misapprehension that if they just published any old podcast with Meghan Markle's name on it and his name on it, people would, would, would subscribe to it, no matter what they said. But in fact, it turned out not to be true. And Spotify, it, the return on investment clearly wasn't there monetarily, but Spotify had bigger hopes and dreams when it came to their work ethic, which, how did Spotify not learn their lesson through Megan's, what was it, was it 22 months within the royal family? Um, she And she called it quits. I think that they do lack a work ethic. I do think that they lack... Um, realistic goals at this point in time within their career and their exit from the royal family. And um, I think that 
people are watching, like the, the rumor that Audible could be talking to Harry and Meghan, Audible is going to look at Spotify's experience with them, see the stories about Meghan calling executives up at the very last minute demanding changes, hearing ideas from Harry about talking to Putin or Trump about their childhood trauma. They're going to take those stories seriously mm. before handing them another huge check to potentially embarrass their company yeah. next. It's got to happen. Kinsey, we've got to run. I'm sorry I came to you a little bit late, so we'll have more time next time. But great to see you. Thank you very much indeed. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. So if you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.